Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. Good evening, David. How are you? I don't. How am I? Uh, <laughs> and same stuff, different day, of course. Uh, of course. Let me tell you, man. Uh, we did the episode last week where we talked about Mike Fuller. I'm going to address it right up front because I wanted everybody to be able to hear it up front. Um, Mike Fuller, more, more information is coming to light. I'll talk about that in a second. But, um, Mike Fuller, last episode, somebody reached out to me. They said, we weren't hard enough on Mike Fuller being a jerk in the first place. And I yeah. actually thought we kind of addressed that in the commentary that we feel that the reason he was actually dropped from Guitar Center was both his comments and the fact that he was already oh. a complete jerk. That his comments were nothing more than the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. right. Uh, so I, not 24 hours after we recorded the episode, I saw Mike Fuller post on his Facebook page that he had written proof that he had canceled his contract with Guitar Center sometime in March and that they did not kick him out. He kicked them out. Okay. So that's how he disappeared from being able to research for his stuff used or new was because he kicked them out. I think that it was a business in his mind. It was a business deal gone bad. That's that's what he's trying to portray to the world at large right now. And uh, they would have sent all of the brand new stuff that he had, probably hundreds, if not thousands of pedals, thousands back to him, because that's what you do when you you don't try to sell off the stock. You just send them back. Well, (laughs) Yeah, in a perfect world, that's that's what we would have wanted to see happen. I mean, uh, no, they would have they would have brought him down to almost um, cost so that they could pay him back. Even if if they did owe him, they would pay him back because somebody tried to indicate that. Oh yeah, they they probably did that because um, Guitar Center was in the rears with him, which I highly doubt, but it's possible. Uh, it's po- not only possible, Jim. Um, from the way that I've heard, they treat their vendors likely. But that being said. That's only because the way that so it comes back to um having the account some accounting background in my my past it comes back to cash versus accrual accounting and the whole idea that right. like real companies are supposed to use accrual accounting this whole idea that they um know what's going they have to pay out and what they have to have come in and then that's how you yep. get into things like net thirty financing and all these different different yep. pieces of that and guys like um um Mike Fuller are probably more in tune with the cash-based accounting where they're looking at the, the checkbook and going, hey, I sent right. you all these pedals. Where's the money? You know? Yeah. Um, and you know what? His product, like, to be honest with you, because of his reputation, probably isn't selling all that well anymore. Um, there was yeah. a time when yeah. I when they it was very good stuff. Like, people looked at it and it was highly right, reputable. Right. But I don't think that's the case anymore. I think most people kind of look at it and go, meh. Meh. Yeah, right. So, um, I don't think the new re- information that's come to light is all that relevant, really. I mean, obviously, you can look at that however you like, but it just seems to me that um, 
it's just people complaining at this point. Like I did see somebody actually um put the put the black the Black Lives Matter logo on an OCD. Um, I thought it was kind of silly that they defaced the pedal, but you know, hey, if you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it. And it what was funny yeah. about it was that uh, like the art was really good. <laughs> and I always thought the yeah. I always thought the full tone art was kind of garbage. So. <laughs> Never. It's very bland. Yeah. So yeah, he he didn't pay anybody a lot of good money. I don't. He's think, like one step above. He's like one step above putting stickers on the pedal and calling it decorated. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the na- the logo was the name. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually. Yeah. You know, and he had some really unique uh, enclosure designs too, like the the OCD enclosure, which is like two bent pieces of metal with screws. <laughs> And then he talked about how how well built they were, and I'm like, dude, you're not gonna tell me that's better than a cast Hammond enclosure, like, yeah, <laughs> no. you did that because it was cheap. <laughs> I can see it happen. Um, but yeah, so that's you know that's that's what I wanted to talk about last episode. Um, there's really not much more to really discuss there. We we've had that conversation on this show before. Uh, no, people with a bad reputation, people don't want to buy from you, and then. You have a bad reputation and a bad social anxiety problem, you know, yeah. following you around, and now you're in trouble. Um, and I can't remember, yep. I can't believe there's a lot of diehards buying uh, Mike Fuller stuff now. So it no. is what it is. Um, but like we said, he'll have a career in music for many years to come. I'm sure doing designs for other people and quietly uh, not telling anybody. An extremely silent partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> He'll have a non-disclosure agreement. It'll be the first one where it was ever non-disclosed that he was even part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, um, what's new with you? I actually, you know what's new with me. Let's do what's new with you first. Anything happen? What do you mean? Uh, the gym opened up on Monday uh, of last week. So today is Sunday. So today was seven solid days being in the gym, um, getting back in getting back into training, um, trying to lose weight, tries, trying to lose enough weight to, you know, be a little bit more um, convinced of myself that I care about myself. Um, <laughs> so I, I could actually feel it even after a week. I finally feel, you know, strength coming back. My breathing is getting better. Um, but it's going to take some time. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who thinks it's going to be overnight. I'm certainly not, uh, I um, want it to be fool myself and, uh, yeah um, I mean we all want a magic pill I think that's the reason that the United States is so full of people with those so many so much instant gratification um there's very little um wanting to work for uh getting things and I'm not saying that nobody does that I'm I'm certainly not um saying that the whole population is a bunch of lazy it, it, we look know, for the easy way out we always have looked for the easy way out it doesn't make any difference that's and i don't right, think it's necessarily it, a, a uniquely american thing i think we all no it's it, it's it's very human nature but um when i say american i'm just talking about the places that i've been and the knowledge that uh are the people that i've i've dealt with when i was overseas is that one of the things that americans want is that quick and we've and we that's part of a larger much larger culture now obviously is that there's this uh thought that you know you just take a pill and you can get thin um take I, a pill and you can when you find you know, it let me know yeah you can love your wife better you can do you know strange things you can work out harder you can because you took a pill you can be less and, depressed uh, 
Yeah, you could be less depressed. And then you just kill yourself instead. Then then you get more depressed because you have to take pills to to feel better about yourself. But anyway, uh, feeling good about that. Thursday. um, So the day after this airs, (laughs) that next evening, I will be, I will be incognito. Won't be able to find me much this week. He will um, be incommunicado. Yeah, incommunicado. Thank you. I almost said something completely wrong. At least you didn't say um, incontinent. Yeah, no. <laughs> but uh, I almost said in in like inconsolable or something, which I know. <laughs> but um, that too. I'll be I'll be completely out of the loop for um, the rest of the week, uh, doing practice tests and running through stuff, and of course sitting down and memorizing ridiculous things like. Um, ISO this and this to that. And did you figure out um, yet how to tell when the USB cable is pointed up or down? Yeah, that's that's the <laughs> only one I have a trouble with. I think it's the um, only one anyone has trouble with. I told Jim because you ever noticed that I told Jim yeah, before the episode the proper procedure for inserting a USB cable. Plug it in, and when it doesn't work, you flip it over, you plug it in again, and when that doesn't work. And you flip it back then to the original position, and then you plug it in, and, and it works fine. And it'll go right in. <laughs> I'm not sure why that is. I, I... <laughs> but it's true. It's true. Um, so uh, anyway, um, yeah, I'm trying to get myself down to uh, – um, everybody tells me that 150 pounds is probably where I, I want to be. Um, so I'm I'm a very – I have a small frame. You'll see that when you, see, when you meet me. I'm a very uh, – very light frame person. He's a tiny dancer. Um, 100, 150, yeah, 150, 160 pounds is probably about right for me, but I'd like to get down to 120. So that's that's something that I'm trying to do. So we'll see. We'll see what it goes and we'll see where it comes from there. Um, of course, I'm older and I do have a lot more muscle than, than I give myself credit. Um, hey, Jim, do you know what's happening later this month? What's that? Gear Fest. I know online and, gear and, online gear fest. Sorry guys, it's kind what of what we sucks. should do is probably do a Discord thing like this. And I think that's exactly what we're gonna do is we're gonna have Discord running. Um, then we can then we could do some like live uh, or you know or video. we could do or we can do the Facebook groups thing. Um, yeah. So they have like a room in there, and I think during Gear Fest we can all be in the room, and then you can all be doing your own thing, and like yeah. you can unmute your microphone and talk when you want, whatever, and. We'll do our, yeah. I think in Discord we can have 20 people. Yeah, so our Discord, so right now we're actually doing this episode on Discord tonight for the first time. Um, and we're yeah. using uh, the Practical Guitar Secret Society server to do it, um, which was originally reserved for uh, the podcast Patreon supporters. But I think we're going to open it up because mm-hmm. it makes sense for us to open it up to some extent. Um, I obviously want to lock down who can get into the recording recordings chatter we'll have to have a private discord server for doing recordings but um the idea would be that this way we could have like we'll have like a practical guitarist uh what do they call it um ear fest uh which yeah i'll be um but it is going to be fun they're gonna they're doing they're doing their typical like here's some some seminars um you'll still be able to contact your rep there, there. I, yep. I have a feeling their rep is probably going to call you during your fest. Um, I get a feeling, and I have. A so feeling, we'll all be sitting here on our phones. <laughs> yeah, and I have a feeling uh, that the deals are going to be just as good as they are in person, because my understanding is that they're actually negotiating deals specifically for the online version of Gearfest, which means that they're 
they're even talking to people like Mesa Boogie and seeing if they, because Mesa is like notorious for not doing deals, that they may actually oh, yeah, be able to get some of that going. Because if you didn't know this, if you go to Gear Fest, they actually do do deals on some Mesa Boogie stuff. But it's not like hundreds of dollars off. It's usually like, hey, we got this special color we ordered a couple of, or we have this right. one that somebody didn't want and we decided to mark it down. Um, which is better than you're going to get from anybody else. Um, unless you have a local dealer who, who will cut you in and, and get in trouble for it. <laughs> um, this is the first, also folks, this is the first time I'm recording on my end. So I'm kind of looking this way once in a while to see how the video is doing and how no, he just doesn't doing. care about anybody. Don't worry about where we're looking. You know, and that's the funny thing. So when you record video, like the whole idea is that you're going to look at the audience are they going to, we're actually, I'm looking at a webcam. There, there's nothing here. Like I'm not looking at I know. you on the other end. <laughs> no, I know. It, it's like, I, I have one of those, um, uh, what do you call those? Um, what do you call it? Can't, let me see if I can get a, um, yeah, trying to get a reflection of it. And instead my phone's showing a pic. Let me see if I can, there we go. So I have one of those lights. Yeah. Folks. He's got a ring light. That's what's over here. He has a ring light. So that's why I got to get another one for this side because that's why this side of my face is, you know, I know I'm beautiful on both sides, but um, anyway. I just glow in so, the dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dave doesn't even use lighting. I live in um, the Chicago suburbs, David, and so I glow in the dark because <laughs> they don't care about their citizens and they just pump radioactive waste into everything. Yeah, I was going to say near a nuclear power plant. And, uh, those, are all, those are all in Kankakee, actually. Uh, they built like eight power plants down south of the city or it was like eight or 11 or something. And they were finished in the late eighties. And because of the, like the um, meltdown at three mile Island or whatever, they decided they were never going to turn them on. So there's like eight, yeah. eight fully staffed nuclear power plants where nothing goes on that we're still paying for as part of ComEd, which is wonderful. Um, yeah. Well, and that's the problem. You can never really completely shut those things down. No. So a nuke doesn't go away. No, there was there was talk. Even if you bury it in Yucca Mountain, it doesn't disappear. There was talk of somebody saying, "Okay, let's get it on a um, let's get on a rocket headed towards the sun." Do you know how hard that would be? And expensive? I mean, the sun is is not just year. That thing is hundreds of years away. I mean, I, by rocket, that would be forever. No, I mean, you, it would you have to somehow years. get it into a decaying orbit and hope it that it several, doesn't hit a planet take, or something. It would take several years, and the reality is, if you shot it. At the sun, the sun has enough gravitational pull. You'd it'd be you'd be surprised by yeah. how close you get. But you would have to make sure you're not going to hit anything else. Right, that's what I'm saying. You'd have to get it into a decaying orbit of some kind to the sun and miss Mars, or I mean, miss Venus, miss Mercury, miss all the asteroids that shoot through. I would on guess. The way. People, I would guess missing all the debris is probably easy, but the but the getting it into orbit and all that is the hard part. Although we're building yeah. a rocket that looks like something from the 1950s, uh, according to SpaceX. So, you know, there's hope for everything. Yeah. Um, I got some new stuff, Jim. Sending a cyber truck up there. Yeah. I got some new stuff. <laughs> Look at this, man. Yeah. Like, you're going to like this. This is this is like the kind of I stuff know. that you like, right? So I got the Analog Man beer koozie, right? Nice, huh? We do pedals. I right? like that. We do pedals. I do like that. That came with something else. Um. It came with something else. Actually, hang on one moment. I'll, I have to. I have to move and get something. All right. So while David's uh, moving about, I'll uh, I'll keep you entertained. 
Um, <laughs> it doesn't take much because he wasn't very, gone very long. Um, so I knew right. You're back. I knew right where it was, and Jim was Jim was uh, delightfully entertaining you while I was gone. Yes, um, I was so entertaining. So analog- I juggled. <laughs> it's from Analog Man. We do pedals right. This is a white king of tone, folks, which is really cool. Um, this pedal, I know it's hyped to all hell, um, and and I've actually played one before. I had this one. Um, I gotta say, I really think that it's it lives up to a lot of the hype. Um, to be completely honest, I know a lot of people are like. Uh, I don't know if it is it the hype or whatever. No, it does. It it's really really good. Um, like to the point where it's kind of frustrating because I could have had this like two or three years ago, and I sat on it. Um, yeah, which was not good. Um, I I so my my impressions of it. Um, hang on, I'm looking for my camera settings while I do this because. I know some out of focus now. Um, my impressions of it that are that it's exceptional at what it does. Um, and it, it, so what it do, what does it do? Right? Uh, it's basically just a Marshall. I think it's a blues breaker uh, circuit. That if you've ever heard the real pedal, the real pedal sounds kind of crappy. Like it sounds kind of fuzzy and like kind of like gross, like a like a uh, a Marshall and uh, uh, Fuzzface like had a baby, and it didn't yeah. sound like Jimi Hendrix. Um, that's kind of what it sounds like. It's a trashy sound and distortion pedal, but he's obviously done a number on the circuit. Um, he's picked the right transistors to go in, or not transistors, but uh, op amps to go in it, and mm-hmm. um, it's got the right feature set. So I'm still using it stock, and actually, um. I find that the overdrive side of it is pretty much where I live uh, with the drive, you know, like one o'clock and the volume at like two o'clock tone at noon. And it gives me a real warm sounding kind of like Marshall extra uh, overdrive sound. And then I can use the Mm -hmm. uh, I can use the boost side, which is the secondary side, um, pretty much neutral with a lot of volume boost to hit the amp harder. And I can use that Mm -hmm. as like a solo boost. Which, um, yeah. now I understand why people want the 4-jack mod for this thing, which easily puts the price above 300 bucks. Um, it's I think it's around 340 bucks or 50 bucks if you do that. Uh, but I can see why people would want to do that, because you could put pedals in between and then use uh. the final pedal as a volume boost. But, uh, no, I, I like it. Like, I, I've been using it into the Kemper. I used it into the Mark V already. Uh, I do plan on doing a video with it. Um, I want to show what I like about it, but I also have a, I have a backlog of videos I need to do, including a video for the P90 pickup giveaway, um, which we're going to be starting probably soon. I'm hoping to get that done this week. I've, I've just been um, inundated with other things, and I haven't been able to sit down and actually install the pickups yet. Uh, but my video setup is running real well, so I think we're going to be able to knock it out um, and do it real quick. But uh, yep. I have four or five other videos I need to shoot. I need to do that. I'm doing uh, Tone Junkie videos. I'm doing more. I'm doing the, the uh, more on the Liverbird stuff, which I was playing around with today. My ears were shot, so it's just basically useless. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get anywhere with it. Um, and I'd like to get 
that done. And then, the, of course, the P90s. And then maybe we'll talk about the uh, King of Tone. And I actually have a video um, I need to do for the Creepy Face Fuzz that uh, Jason Fuzzmonger sent to me. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. But uh, we are also an audio podcast. So if you don't really want to watch us, you just want to listen to us, uh, you can look up our audio podcast as well and just, you know, get the episodes that way. So. I know we've got I know we've got some new uh, YouTube uh, blood because I see the uh, stats and I see how many people find us organically. So that's good. Anyway, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna I have some ideas on how we can improve our experience for YouTube too. We're we're gonna talk about that, Jim, because that's that's good stuff. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I I was so I've done some videos outside of you YouTube, so I need to um, sit down and and do some stuff for this. I've been I've been doing this yeah can everybody say that <laughs> jim yeah. has been studying for work crap for uh nearly what a month now a month and a half this is this is one of several books um yeah it's been going and going and going and i gotta i gotta take the let me see if i yeah 501 um and it's gonna be wow um so i i'm not I'm not trying to fool myself into thinking that um, I'm bulletproof, but I need to get, you know, I don't, I want to get this uh, onto this contract. So that's on the personal side and that's outside of the scope of this uh, channel, but it's certainly what's been um, pushing me uh, the last few months. Um, looking at picking up a position and, and I have to have a secret clearance. So I'm going through a lot of stuff with that. Um, it's uh it's not fun. Well, and right now we've got yeah. uh, you're you're uh, you're off of Guitar Center because uh, of the COVID yeah. nineteen and all that craziness. Um, and you would think I'd have more time. No, because no. I know I don't have more time, and and quite frankly, I only have one job. <laughs> I only have one job. <laughs> I sat down and actually played guitar, like just playing, not worrying about like what I was going to do. I just laid down a track and then played over it for about an hour and a half the other day. And, uh, that was the first okay. time in like how long? <laughs> like weeks. And it's been months. Well, weeks. Yeah. Weeks at least. Um, since I actually was able to just, just play. And I, I wrote a little, uh, one flats or one minor six, uh, four or five thing um, because I wanted to play in a, in a major key. Mm. I wanted to force myself to play in a major key. That was the only objective um, and see what it sounded like and play it in like four or five different places. I really meant to record it. I really did. I meant to, meant to record it um, warts and all. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to um, get through this, uh, uh, this stuff for work, um, so I can pick up this new job. I'm supposed to start Monday of next week. So as you're hearing this, I would start five days later. Yeah. Um, and it's just um, been. Uh, uh, I'm highly motivated. Don't get me wrong. Uh, monetarily and and personally, I'm highly motivated. Uh, the job I could do, I could pick it up tomorrow. It's what I did for years uh, for Verizon. Um, the problem is 
now to work on a government um, uh, network, you have to have a Security Plus certification. Yeah. You'll it doesn't it. matter what. It doesn't matter that you've got thirty years of experience. You have to have this ridiculous test. And from what I understand, here's a kicker: the the test questions, not all of them, will count. <laughs> Some of them are just trials of the questions. Oh, that's nice. Let's use these people that are taking the test and and on pins and needles about it to try them out. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I want to punch CompTIA in the mouth. Um, and, uh, the, the other side of it is that, that each section is weighed differently. So right. like a question in this part might be worth more than, or well, is more than a question in another part. So, right. so forth. It's like, and it has a, to do with the risk mitigation. Yeah. Skewed by over 10% and ridiculous stuff, as you know, cause you've studied, um, some of the stuff, it's like, it's like asking, um, a guitar player. So um, if you were playing, uh, you know, uh, a 1942 uh, Epiphone, whatever, and it, it, and nobody has one because they don't exist anymore. Because the last one, like if you were asking somebody if they had a dodo bird, what would you feed your dodo bird? I don't know. They don't exist anymore. Who cares? But that's the kind of thing that it's in there. Um, things that you would never like, like, oh, don't use web security. Who, who uses web? Nobody uses web. They haven't used web since day one. That's yeah. the 90s. I mean, uh, and it's still uh, in there. And this thing's been updated five freaking times. This is 501. Do you know what, kill, do you know what kills me about, about the, the CompTIA training for that? So, like, it's only as good as the hardware you're deploying it on. Because I, I – and they, we'll, get back yeah. to, we'll get back to music in a second. But, like, I had, I had um, uh, a router – and it was from a major manufacturer, and I won't I won't say who because because obviously like this sucks. So nobody should have this. <laughs> Shh. Yeah. And nobody should have it's this. Not so nobody should have. Well, so they had a they had a web GUI right for the for the router, yep. and they needed me to get access to it. And I was like, I really don't want to reset this because I'm gonna have to go around. I'm gonna have to touch all you know five machines they got and all this, plus their phones and everything. So I'm like, all right, I come in as a consultant. I dial into the, uh, yep. I dial into the router, the web page. And I'm like, yep. I can't, I, I don't know what the username and password is. So I try the default one because most people just leave it on the default. And it worked. No, no, Jim, better than that. Oh. So it didn't work. So I got to thinking, I was like, you know what? I wonder if I can see something in the code behind. So I hit F11 to bring, you know, view source. And I was digging around. And in the source code, I searched for the word password and I found the password. <laughs> it stored it in like a JavaScript file that was openly served up. On that router, I'm not kidding. I'm. These, this wasn't that things, long they're ago. On the test. This was like I mean, six are, years ago. In the test. Yeah. This was like six That's years. That's one ago. of the. Yeah, I believe that. <laughs> I believe that. The uh, um, whenever somebody asks me to do just what you're talking about, first thing I do is I try to find a router I can break into. Mm -hmm. I go. I go for the. I go for the low hanging fruit, and then I work from there. And then I tell them this is what. You know, this is what I found. Yeah, so um, so don't you know, shore up your stuff. Uh, and you know yeah. what? Actually, this is relevant to music because now we got all these uh, these uh, mixers that are Wi-Fi enabled with the the uh, iPad thing. So, like, if you really want to have a good time, um, just show up and have like have like you know your your laptop computer and sit down, 
and uh, hack into their Wi-Fi yep. network and then mess with their yep. their uh, mixer. Because once you get into yeah, that Wi-Fi that guitar, network, I'll fix this problem. <laughs> it's all over, but the crying. Turn the turn the guitar all the way off. Turn yeah. the singer, uh, you know, mess with their with their stuff. Put the feedback in. Oh my god, these guys suck. <laughs> modify, modify their effects. I'm telling you, if you if you're it, what David is saying um, happens. Yeah, I know it there does. Was a, there was a there was a guy on an airplane. This didn't get a lot of uh, a lot of press. <laughs> it was a guy on an airplane who hacked in using the entertainment system, hacked into the navigation system, and flew the plane <laughs> sideways for several thousand feet. I mean, it's not funny, but it is funny because it's like, why in the yeah. hell should he even be able to do that? Who is the engineer right. that made it so that he could communicate it? with? You know, who's the mean? engineer that said? if we should put the entertainment system on the same in the network yeah. <laughs> with the uh, you'd think that the I navigation remember, would not even be like remotely tied into that <laughs> I remember in the year 2000 this being a problem but I can't imagine that being something that you would want to well that's because they don't hire like, people like you that would be certified in this to oh no they, the they hire some Somebody who can really take a test well got through that thing and has never done the job. Yeah, they, or they or they, they have do. no security background whatsoever, but they're a really good developer. And like because that's... they could, uh, yeah, they memorized the the difference between blue snarfing and blue snarking. Oh boy, one letter, uh, um, a Smurf attack versus a very uh, and a DOS versus DDOS, or yeah, you know, you know, a sin attack. Which is a specialized EDOS test. And that's the other thing about this test. There are more right answers. I hate tests that have more right answers. If there's anything that shouldn't happen, it's a test with a more right answer. Yeah. What kind of shit is that? Well, that's they, there, it's, this test is designed to make sure that you know what you say you know. But the problem is, in our in our field, knowing what you say you know only lasts like a couple hours. Things change right. literally minute to minute, um, and yep. so it's useless the day it goes in it goes into printing. Um, yeah, but anyway, so back to the to guitar related mischief. Um, what guitars, Jim? What I are those? Sent, I sent Jim a picture this morning. Oh my and I'm God. not going to give away the name of the person because they might listen to the show. They actually might listen to the show. Um, but <laughs> it was so funny. They posted a picture of their rig. And it led me down this path of like, huh? Like, wait, what are you doing? Like, so if you've ever frequented like pedal boards of doom, for example, and you've looked at people's rigs there and you've ever had a moment where you're like, wait a minute, why is the pedal order so messed up here? Or, um, I don't understand exactly what's going on and what, like what goes in the effects loop and what goes on the regular. So what I saw today and it prompted another question. Um, what I saw today was two Kempers in a rack, uh, which is $4,500. Both uh, active, by the way. Yeah, both turned on. Um, neither of them had their effects loop engaged, because you can tell from the color of the icons, or the color of the yeah. buttons. Um, nobody had their effects loop engaged. Um, the the board that was sitting next to it was not did not have a remote on it. It had a Mastermind controller, a couple of drive pedals, the Strymon trifecta, 
Yeah, yeah, the, the Strymon trifecta, not Strymon trifecta. I'm talking about the Strymon trifecta, the the what is it? Yeah, the the, mo- the holy trinity. The, uh, yeah, the, the blue, blue sky. sky. Uh, no, it's the big sky, big sky, big sky, sky. Uh, timeline, and Mobius. Yep. Mobius. And I see this, and I go, "You have the Strymon trinity on your board, and you're running a pair of Kempers." Like what in what are you actually trying to achieve with this? And then it dawned on me the effects loop isn't engaged, which means that his modulation, delay, and reverb boxes are not in the loop. They're out in front of these campers. And on top of that, he's got delay running or he's got a reverb running on the Kemper while all this is going on. So it's like, what exactly does this even sound like? I have I had just had I had like this moment. And I was like, wait a minute. You're running Strymon pedals in front of your camper. Well, <laughs> I get let's all right, let's say that the camper is boggling to me. Let's, let's say that the the camper is being treated as a pedal platform, right? Right. Let's, let's say that That's it a is. really expensive pedal platform. <laughs> okay, yeah. At, the, at this point, of course, you don't know when the picture was taken. We don't know when. Well, maybe we do. No, we I don't do. know when. The, <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, why not just buy two of those Strymon pedal things that are that are that are amp cab yeah. models and put, put two iridiums to I mean, save yourself thousands of dollars. That's what I was. Yeah, put a pair of iridiums in there and sell your campers. I mean, I, I honestly don't understand the the that mentality at that point you're playing keyboards on the guitar so i mean and we know that i mean that's basically padded. with it's, with all of that stuff that he's got like that's exactly what his guitar sounds like it, 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 there we go. very much in that realm and, yeah. then, and then jim it, points out he goes well look at the guitar he's like it's obviously um it's obviously somebody who likes to show how much money they have because he points out this is boutique guitar and, i'm looking at this boutique guitar but what I think is a boutique guitar, yeah. I thought it said Framus or something uh, like that. Yeah, I thought it was Tyler. Out, it's a piece of crap. It's a it Tagama from Brazil. Yeah, which, a Tagama. Which goes for, what did you say, $229 new? Yeah, between $229 and $300. So you've got, you've got, I don't know how many thousand dollars worth yeah. of stuff. Ten thousand dollars worth of stuff. Forty-five hundred dollars for the pedal for the for the amplifiers. Probably two grand for the pedal board. Another, yeah. you know, five hundred bucks worth of cabling, and yeah. and board, and then and then and a, a three hundred dollar guitar. <laughs> it doesn't get more practical than that. It doesn't. <laughs> I was crying when I saw this. So that brought up that that that's. Okay. You're gonna try to be hipster. Go hipster. Look, I don't know. I, I look. I don't know. I mean, maybe this sounds good. Like maybe he's got a purpose. Whatever. I'm not. But it is funny because like it defies logic. If it wasn't for my it horse, I would have spent that year in college. Um, I will say this though. It brought up another interesting conversation because I'm a member of a very particular. I will say. Th- okay, go ahead. I will say. I will say one other thing. It is a possibility, however slight, however remote. That the Kemper and the Blue Sky, or I mean the Blue Sky, the Big Sky and the Mobius and the Timeline and all other stuff belongs to the church. And the only thing that he had to buy was that freaking piece of crap guitar that he brings in every week. I would suspect actually the following. He has one board. It's got all his stuff on it. 
when he uses his camper, he's just using the drive pedals. Everything else is off. Camper's doing delay and reverb. The campers, as in multiple. Could be. Um, Could be. But anyway, that's probably what's going on here. You know, he's got these Strymon pedals and he's never sold them or whatever. You know, whatever. Um, But that brought up the other interesting question. So I'm a member of a pretty exclusive group on Facebook. I don't even actually know what the name is offhand, but it's a bunch of guitar techs and some actually like civilians um, Mm -hmm. who share pictures of famous rack rigs. And I got into this oh, group. Yeah. I got into this group because somebody else mentioned to me that they were a member of this group and that I should join it. And uh, I went and I joined it. And I saw yesterday, or it was no, it was, it was longer than it was probably a week ago. Somebody posted a picture of two refrigerator racks with two mini racks on top, with no less than ten axe effects across the two of them. And I believe those were Axe 2, the Axe 2 Ultra Plus or whatever, the one right before the Axe Vex 3, um, which would which would further make some things crazy because down below in the comments, it says whose rig this is. And this is the technician that works for Neil Schoen posting a picture of Neil Schoen's rig. Now, here's, yeah, here's where that. this gets scandalous. So this, <laughs> this photo is Neil Schoen's rig but Neil Schoen is supposed to have a PRS amp endorsement. Um, and he's been a he's been an endorser of the Archon for a while. Yeah. Um but he, he's not yeah. using the Archon anymore. <laughs> That's for sure. I think, the, I, only the, I think the only place the Archon sits is on stage. Um, right where you can see it. I saw I them think that years may ago. actually be true. Um, um and and or this is right before he started using the Archon, which is possible. Yeah, but the Because the acts are old. Well, yeah, no, those are the ones right before the three. The three is only like two years old. So yeah, I would think this is right in the time period where he should have had that endorsement, but I don't know for mm-hmm. sure. It could, it's still a possibility. Yeah. But even so, he's got, so what I figure is A-Rig, B-Rig, right? So one refrigerator rack and mini rack is for the A-Rig yep. that goes on Monday, Wednesday, you know, Friday, whatever. Um, And then the other rig is for Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. You know, so right, they, they fly them ahead of him. Right. So, but still, f- five Axe Effects in one rack. What are you doing with these? What? And, yeah. and you saw the foot controllers. There's like 10 foot controllers on the floor. And I, I'm like, wait, what? Um, And, I, and yeah. I, I would assume what his tech is doing is he's got a foot controller yeah, backstage so that he can fade, so he can fade the individual ones in and out as needed. Yep. But like, yep. why not just use presets and scene modes to get all of the XFX like heavy lifting done? Instead, you've got five. Like, what is going on here? Um, there's there's two things to remember with shown. But all right, ego. I think huge. that you should. I see. think that's I think the big one. I think his ego has a bus by itself. And then the other one um, is that Sean, he's, a, he's an awesome guitar player. I mean, I've seen the guy live several times, and I just saw him two years ago during the last uh, tour. Incredible not, player. Not disputing but, how good he is. No, no, I'm just, but as far as guitar go, tone goes, even back in the 70s, his guitar tone was very precise. And he even said himself, he's not going for a guitar tone. 
he goes for a searing uh, sound that he wants to be like a horn section. So he has a lot of effects for a reason. Um, one of the, I think one of the things that I was reading about was where he, they were talking about his rig during a certain song. It's like, don't stop believing or something like that. They're doing this huge. And, and, and then you come to find out it was like this little freaking piece of crap amp that they had that, it was just him into this amp. Yeah, well, it's because they could also make that amp sound like it was blowing up too, which is exactly. Um, exactly. Here's here's where I where I think this is funny though. So, on your XFX two F Ultra or whatever plus, you can do, I believe you can have up to four amps in a rig, yep. and I think you can have two of them active at any time. You can have two complete effects chains. And yes, you can max it out, but you'd have to have a lot of stuff going on to get him to where they say, I can't do this anymore. Um, and he's got five of them. So I would assume four are active with one as a spare. Yep. Um, which makes me like, what in the hell is... I, and I think ego is, is a big part of it, but I also think yeah. like over-preparedness and I think, I think excess... The idea that, like, well, when we went out in the 70s, we took eight marshals, so I'm going to have five X. <laughs> like, you even know what this does? No, my tech sets well, it up for me. <laughs> um, And again, so Journey comes from that, um, the Arena Rock. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Right. Um, But he comes from playing with, uh, with, Carlos Santana. We've talked about that before. Um, <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> but, yeah, if you think about the time frame, right? If you think about the time frame when he broke off from Santana and Journey started to come to where, oh, they had their first hit. It was just before. Yeah, that insurrection. Stu uh, Perry joined the band. Yeah. Um. So just as you're coming to that movement, there was another big band that hit the, the, the stage and that was back of Boston. Right. Right. And what did Boston have for a real rig? I mean, when they went on tour that, Oh yeah, look at me. I'm just like Peter Frampton. I've got all these, you know, um, got all these huge amplifiers with me. Yeah. I, I think actually um, they were right at the same time. And in the studio, yeah. they were using every trick in the book to make it. He like was, yeah, and and on stage it was all trickery. He used he used his Rockman, and so they had empty cabs, and you know who was using real cabs, who was using fake cabs at the time. It's hard to tell. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stories that Ace Frehley wasn't doing his stuff. It was a so I was, you know, we talked a lot about. Um, how I came up in a different time and there was a, you know, different music and so on and so forth. So I was sitting down, um, cause going to the gym, I get to listen to a lot of different mixes of music. Right. And I sat down and I, and, uh, I started listening to like the hits of the hits of 1971, the hits of 1972, the hits of 1970. And you know what, you know what I found? What? I've just got a lot more stuff to look at because I've got, a lot more years to look at. It's not necessarily that any one of them or small five to 10 year section was better. It's just that there's a, a lot of it. Um, you know, a, a musician will, and rightly so, argue that 
there was also different things um, that had to do with this. There was the, um, you know, the fact that they gave musicians more time. Um, a lot of the musicians wrote their own stuff, you know, and so on and so forth, and this, that, and the other thing. Um, and that that all seems to be right. There was more time for a career. Um, now it's like, okay, we got you. We're gonna plant you in this position. We're gonna make you look like this. We're gonna we're gonna hire stylists. We're gonna hire this. We're gonna hire that. And we're gonna make you, you know, you they can't come up. Like, that, they don't look for artists that have already done that for themselves. Like they right, look for you artists can't, that they can mold. You can't find an Aerosmith. You can't find a Cars. A group of people who played clubs and. Oh, I, and I would argue. I would them. argue you can find those people, but they don't want to. But right, right, and and one of the arguments I remember reading about that the reason they don't want to find these people is these people know what they want. If I take if I take a Joe Schmo off the street, who is great at karaoke, and I say, okay, I'm going to put some tracks behind you. We're going to have some people faking the music behind you. Um, and they're going to be mostly dancers, okay? All I need you to do is hit this mark at this time, this mark at this time. We're going to get a personal, you know, we're going to get somebody to make you look good. We're going to make you get somebody to look, you look pretty. Uh, we're going to do all this stuff and so on and so forth. And then we're going to present you to the world. And we're going to blow this song up by putting in everything. It's going to be in video games. It's going to be in Wonder Bread commercials. It's going to be in, um, you know, Chuck Wagon. Thing. It's gonna, everybody's going to see it all the time. And we're gonna make you a star. If you're if you're a wide-eyed child, of course. Why wouldn't you? That's that's the dream, right? And it, uh, I mean, yeah, it, especially back then when you were naive. And nowadays, right? Like nowadays, the people that have prepared for it and are ready for that to happen, they don't want to touch them because that means they can negotiate oh. a deal. Anybody who says right. when you get him a contract, they say, let me call my lawyer. Um, <laughs> yeah, they don't want that. They don't want that. That's the last thing they want because they can't rob your mind. Right. Why would they want you to be able to contact your lawyer? Why would they want you to look into how much money you're going to make per spin on Spotify? How much? Why would they want you to, to see what you're going to get? And, um, of course, then there's the people that are, that are savvy enough that want to – um, build their careers by creating music themselves, right? I mean, they're they're YouTube channeling. We're YouTube channeling, right? I mean, they're yeah. The these young people are making a killing by doing that. They don't need you. They don't need the record company. The record no. company. No, I mean, and I think for the I think for the most part, you're correct. Um, distribution deal is no longer an issue. Like you don't need distribution. Um, no, why would you? You really don't even. So this whole idea that like back in the 70s and 80s when you needed a record company was because you couldn't afford to go into a recording studio by yourself or with a band right. and record a record and self-finance it. If you did, it was yeah. on like the gear from like 10 years prior in some closet and it came out, but it didn't come out great. So you can look at examples of that. Like you can find the early Twisted Sister records, which apparently like they're not well recorded. They're They're well thought out, but they're not well recorded. Because they didn't have right. a major label deal. Um, and no. when they finally did get a good deal, like they made a decent record. And then when they fin yep. finally got their real deal, then they made, you know, two really good records before they disbanded or whatever you want to call that. Um, right. And it's, 
like I see the kind of same things going on in music right now where they don't want to mess with somebody like Twisted Sister who's already making a bunch of money um, because of a marketability concern, but also because they know that they know the business, which is the real reason. So there was a there was a documentary that was done, and so it's on Netflix, I think, uh, called Twisted Effing Sister. Um, and if, oh, you, yeah. if you go watch it, they, they, they make out like in the documentary and actually in the interviews, they make out like, well, we're not being, we weren't, they weren't interested in us because we were glam. So they were dressed up like women and stuff. Um, but that really wasn't why they weren't interested. That was a big part of it. Uh, cause it was definitely a male dominated, like uh conservative boys club in the, the artist community at that point, like the, the A&R people. But, um, that was, that was only part of it. Like they knew that if they signed them, they already knew the business, and that was going to be a problem. And you can see D. Snyder has gone on to do that in everything he does. Like he knows the business and he knows it very well, which is why he's been he's had a very lucrative career. Um, he worked right. very hard to make sure that he's making money, and there's nothing wrong with that. And actually, I think if anything, that kind of it's interesting because I've heard it said by artists, especially local artists, I've had conversations with. That people that know the business generally aren't good creatives. I think that's a load of BS. I think it's people who know the business and are good creatives get shafted because right. they know they can't control them. Um, and yep. you, you'll see a couple of them every once in a while. Like Peter Gabriel is a good example of a guy that uh, he knows the business really well. And he's more creative than most people in the industry. And because of that, like he's gotten shafted on record deals and stuff over his career. So he had to start his own label. And he had to argue with Geffen and all these other companies to get himself distributed. And actually, the funny part was, like, when he retired from Genesis, he was done. He didn't want to be a part of the industry anymore. He was fine just releasing a record every five or six years, just as, like, a love letter yeah. of fans. And um, he ended up having to turn that into a profitable enterprise to support some of his um, some of his uh, humanitarian endeavors. Um, right. Which is, which is an interesting, like, that's an interesting paradigm. You wouldn't see anybody else in the industry that, like, uh, had the breadth of catalog of somebody like him that understands the business side of it too, um, if that were true. And I and I that's why I said I think I think those people tend to operate on the fringes. Like David Bowie's another classic example of somebody who knew the business well enough to know that he was making friendships with the right people so that right. he could continue to make music. Um, now he he was fortunate enough to be blessed with a lot of success because of his artistic integrity, um, but. If if they were asked to take a chance on him and he sat down at the table and said, okay, I want to look at the contract first, I don't know that it ever would have gone anywhere. I yeah, yeah. Some of these people learned on the job, like, and I think that David Bowie's probably one of them. Um, who? Yeah, you take, yeah, you take the bands that came up through the clubs and came up through really busting out um, and, and paid their dues. Um, you know, like I said, Aerosmith was one of them. Uh, a lot of those Boston bands um, were those, not the band Boston, <laughs> but um, well, it's oddly enough you bring that up because Twisted Sister was an East Coast band too. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. and that and that's the point is that they figured out a way to make money at it long before yeah, they New York City popular. You know, yeah, at that time New York City was a hotbed. Um, you had in the in the early seventies, you had a hotbed of musicians that came from New York City. Um, if they didn't come from overseas, you got to remember that was after the British invasion, right? And everything came from over there, and you had this you had this 
uh, thing. Um, Zeppelin, I think, was really the kind of towards the end of a Brit British invasion. You, I would argue they're at it. pretty much the last real British invasion band. Yeah. And then you've got this resurgence of musicians that came up through Boston, through New York. Um, and of course, um, the fight between rock and disco, uh, which was, a lot of people think the disco was late 70s, and it wasn't. It started in the early 70s. Yeah. And um, one, of the, one of the things to look at when you look at the, that whole time frame was that uh, there was, um, there was a, uh, um, a lot of disco and a lot of the solo acts, the acts that weren't uh, bands, they were names, you know. Um, and so as the, as the bands started to come up, you know, from the, the, that early 70s, that was, you know, you, whether you like them or don't like them, there was Kiss, um, you know, like them or don't like them, uh, Boston, there was Aerosmith. You know, I was just looking at Aerosmith. I said, really? That was that long ago? Wow. Yeah. Couldn't believe it was that long ago. Yeah, that band's you know, almost 1973. Band's almost 50 years old. Train kept a rolling. I was like, what? Really? Um, Bob Seeger, uh, you know, who was out of, by the way, Nick will be quick to remind us that he came from Michigan. He was a Detroit uh, boy. Um, you know, uh, there was that, uh, that whole era. Rush was, um, you know, a band that came from the, the folks that uh, were playing. I, I think that there was that um, story of a DJ somewhere in the Midwest that played their music while they went to the toilet because the songs were long and they caught on because it was good. Um, but I just, I find it interesting and amusing that uh, we have a whole, um, we have a whole group of people that think, oh, the older music was great. Well, let's, let's remember that the older music did include some real crap too. But what's funny is um, like Harry Chapin, Harry Chapin was a, um, was very Peter Gabriel in his music, believe it or not. Harry Chapin didn't really care how much money he made. He was all about his humanitarian efforts. If you look into Harry Chapin, the guy who wrote Taxi, and the guy who wrote, you know, that was the one who, who did uh, Cats in the Cradle. He was a political activist. This time frame would have been him. You know, he was a Woody Guthrie of his time, the early 70s. Um, uh, died very tragically. But I'm just saying that... that um, we're we're in an awesome age. We really are, because you could publish a song yourself. You can you could do it all. I mean, that, yeah. How I mean, incredible. Is I that? mean, honestly, like that's what what kills me is that you know we talked about. Um, I don't think we've talked about Billy Eilish on the show before, but um, people are seem like they're so freaked out by the fact that her whole rec record was recorded at home. Like, where where the hell are you from? Where are you living at? You, you, I, you can get online right now. You can buy all the equipment that the pros use online from one vendor and have it delivered to your house, assemble it, and write and, and, write and record a record that sounds just as good as anything else. Now, Absolutely. you need to know your way around a studio to do it because you can't just set it up in your living room and hope to God it sounds good. But you can do it. it I, yeah. It's a possibility. And you got to understand, 
if you're if you're not old enough to understand this, this is this is the reality. As early as the mid '80s, having a home studio was like intense luxury. Um, oh my god! To have you know even just a simple recorder. When those first cassette uh, Porta studios came out from Tascam, that was like holy crap! We could do multi track recording at home. I mean, I I I knew a guy who was talking about having his home studio in 1980 I think he said it was and it was really just like two inch tape he had two tracks left and right and that is how they did everything they had a they had a mixer and every band performed live there were no punch-ins there were no corrections and they you bet you had to be good um and actually I watched uh to go to go even further I watched uh uh, an episode about how or I I think it's a, a sound on sound uh, YouTube channel. They did a how the records in the fifties were made, and they actually found a studio in England where they where they had bought all the authentic equipment and had put together this like nineteen fifties rockabilly style studio. And it's like literally when you realize that like the Elvis recordings are two microphones, you're just like, what? Uh, that was because the only consoles yeah. that existed were two channel or four channel. <laughs> the um, the the song Louis Louis. Louie, Louie. Yeah, it's probably one oh, microphone. One no. microphone. Had one be. microphone had in the be. middle of a room. And it's mono. That, it's not even stereo. Yeah. So yeah. W- think about the luxury we have. I have Cubase unlimited tracks. I have Cubase Pro unlimited tracks. And I yep. can record eight simultaneously. Like I have eclipsed my forefathers tenfold. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. so to sit there and act like you didn't know that Billie Eilish could record a record that won a Grammy in her house just seems nuts to me like where have you been living are you under a rock this has been a thing for like 20 years really in the late think, 90s this this stuff became attainable i knew people who bought pro tools rigs for their house in the late 90s yeah but even even early pro tools pro tools rigs were relatively expensive oh sure the software was expensive. the early ones but in the late the 90s in the late 90s yeah. you could get a 4416 interface from them for like five grand and if you're going to yeah. be doing like 16 tracks and you were going to record your buddies, you could charge them a little bit and you could pay for the interface. People did it. Yeah. I'm I re- just saying that th- there was a time, Jim, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off this time, but there, there's a time, uh-huh. there was a time back then when the, the, like the default home studio setup was the, um, the interface I was talking about, right? Like pro tools interface in Iraq. And then next to it was this Mackie, like, um, it was like, 18 by, or it was like, no, it was a 16 by 16 by 32 bus mixer, digital mixer. And like, that's what everyone had. (laughs) Like you could, you'd see people posting their like home studio online and it would be exactly that. And you're sitting there going, really? (laughs) That that predates me playing guitar, but you can go on Wayback Machine. You can check it out. Uh, You'll see, you'll see that that was like, that was the thing. Um, And later on it, you know, kind of diversified. A lot of people went well, it, ADATs after that, which was weird. Yeah. Like, you, you were going direct ADAT. to your PC, and then you took a step back and started recording the VHS tapes. <laughs> yep, a lot of people I knew were up to ADAT. Um, the, the thing that was a problem early on was PCs weren't really – there was a lot of lag, a lot of drop frames, a lot of drop uh, stuff. To, um, almost all those dudes were running Macs back then too because – you didn't have that extrapolation layer, so you could yeah. run basically driverless. 
Um, yep. And that was that was basically the way you did it because that was the only way you could make it work reliably. Yeah. The um, the other part of it was if you were sitting down, let's say like now, you and I could uh, for a hundred dollars. I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw this out there for a hundred dollars. I have eight tracks enabled in live, plus whatever loops I want and stuff. Before, if I had a fader that had to move, like if I had to pull a fader, if you had a little bit of delay of you pulling that fader, can you imagine how bad that affects your mix? Yeah. You're trying to like, yeah. I mean, and now and punching in, you know, you you had to be able to punch it. That delay, you had to know what the delay was when you're punching. I mean, I can't imagine that. And that's why I think, um. There was still that love of ADAT um, in the beginning. Um, once, once PCs, because remember, Macs were expensive. Macs are still expensive. Yeah, and back then they were a more PC, expensive. Yeah, not to say that my PC right now costs eighteen. No, well, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. In with the rate of inflation, with the rate of inflation back then, to do it, you'd need a Mac Pro, and like, yeah. you were paying. Um, it's like four thousand uh, dollars. Yeah, a friend of mine then. had a. Um, yeah, a friend of mine had a publishing studio um, because he he made signs and stuff like that. He had a Mac on the back end that was that was his thing. Um, so he had two Macintosh or yeah Mac Macintoshes, and he spent I want to say twelve grand on the Macs, and then he still had to buy interface to, um, equipment yeah. for Macs. And the problem we ran into for a short time—I don't know if you remember this—is when companies would make a device it was mac or it was pc yeah and then very few devices worked on both and you know what the funny part the other you know what the funny part about that jim is the only difference was drivers so if you knew what know, drivers and for the windows equivalent you could get them to run it wasn't like the hardware was any different it came in a different box yeah <laughs> yeah oh i know i know <laughs> and but all I'm saying is, so if you take, I mean, let's let's face it, most sound engineers aren't exactly computer savvy. Um, they they know how to work their software. Sure. And they know how to use, uh, but sure. um, as far as that goes, but uh, I I don't know why I'm letting this piece of hair bother me, but I am. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the fact is that there's so many, um, there were so many still uh, hardware things. Now, Billie Eilish, I, I mean. I think a bigger the bigger problem with Billie Eilish wasn't exactly that she ran it her her album in her home. I think the bigger problem with Billie Eilish was people people were like, "Oh, this girl has to suck. She has to. She has no backing, so she has to suck. She has no this, so she has to suck." And I'm not, I saw her I live. Really, I wasn't I really commenting on that. I was commenting on the fact that I've actually seen people say, "I can't believe she recorded this at home. Like, how is that even possible?" Yeah. yeah. What? I, <laughs> right and i saw i saw her do like one of those things you know where they go to a radio station and they play and i was ready to for her i was ready for her to suck i was ready for major suckage and i was amazed i actually liked that better than the one that she recorded only because i thought she had a little more emotion and was, there were certain things i like better i'm not saying that was you know i'm I, just saying that I, I enjoyed I, it more i think they were prone to recording a record like that i think they were prone to making it perfect because 
and, yeah. and, and, and sucking all the life out of it too, because they were, yes. they were given infinite record time. So that's one of the things you got to remember. Like a lot of, we, we talked about the show. A lot of these great records are great because of mistakes. And the reason why yep. they're great because of mistakes is because they didn't have much time in the studio. <laughs> they were only given a certain amount of money. And so they go in and they try to do everything in three hours. And then they go, yep. well, there's a mistake on that. And then the guy goes, I really don't want to have to punch that in. We've only got 15 minutes, you know? <laughs> so it's like, yeah. okay, <laughs> print it. Yeah. Yeah, a completely different writing process and a completely different production process. Right. You take, like, um, uh, an interview with David Gilmore and he was talking about the writing process of, um, I think it was Echoes, and he was talking about how it started out, you know, where they were just doing this E minor jam and it was this live thing and and they would they would test the songs on the audiences. Mm-hmm. You don't hear you don't hear about that anymore. You don't you don't I really. Do that. Yeah, I'm talking about the 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 big yeah, big like, right. and I think it's coming back. I think I think it will come back. Um, I think Billy Eilish, 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 whatever is a um. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I I'm sure she doesn't care how I I pronounce it. She's she's laughing her way out of the bank. Um, but she's. I think that somebody like her, we needed somebody like her. We needed somebody like her to say, you know what, record company. And yeah, she is the Joe Bonamassa of pop music. She's the one that said to the record company, everybody else, like, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And if you don't like it, tough. I'm going to, I'm going to make these songs and I'm going to put them out. And does she have, do we know if she has a major deal yet? I don't know. Cause I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out she's totally like, outside the system at that point because she did the record at home i mean that's yeah that's essentially her being like f you to the man pretty much i mean um i don't know i i mean i know i know some people aren't bottom fans but that the fact is that he he pulled the you know he pulled that with the record company said you know what you i don't i don't need your and i i do this myself (laughs) i don't need you (laughs) i i don't know if I don't really know if most people could have pulled off what she did. But no, I, don't I will say this. The potential is there for you to do it. And if you want to live up yes. to that potential, um, it's definitely something that you can investigate and pursue. And I'm willing to bet that you could make a record at home and yeah. it'll be to the best of your talent and ability level. Um, well, somebody had to pay for her videos. Her videos are pretty well... As I'm uh, saying... I think she did get backing, but it may have been after they recorded it. I don't know. It's weird because it's a weird situation. Normally, that doesn't happen that way. Um, and yeah. I don't know. I don't have all the details, but I know that uh, who's the other woman we we spoke highly of um, uh, Saint Vincent. Yeah, she talks about how she, you know, she. I'm sure she has a record label, but she talked about how she would do things, um, you know, at home come up with all this stuff at home well yeah she demos everything and like that's what i do too um and i think most people are doing that now at this point even tosin abbas he was talking about the fact that like he's way behind on demoing because he never really learned to do any engineering stuff so he's like i would he's like i'm just going to the studio and do it and it's funny because now it's like i would i'm really interested to hear the next animals as leaders record because i have a feeling it's going to be very different because now he's he's not making stuff on the fly um and I have a feeling it's going to be a lot more well thought out. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Uh, with somebody yeah. like him, I suspect it'll be good. But um, 
that's that's an interesting juxtaposition though like demoing at home versus demoing in a studio uh <laughs> you certainly have more time to let your ideas percolate from a writing perspective we've been asked about writing before in the show i i find it if you're a local independent artist open mics and um that kind of thing are even small live shows are really the best way to write your music get up on stage jam the idea out and just see what happens and keep doing yeah. it because you'll play to the audience and what'll happen is you'll start to form full ideas. And ideally you would like to record this so that you can go back and, you know, tap into that energy when you, when you need to actually record the song. But I've been doing that and I got to tell you, man, my stuff's improved a lot. Um, just getting in front of people and getting their reaction as I'm doing it. And it feeds into my ideas about how things are supposed to work. And it's not, yeah. Like don't 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 take it to be like I'm getting in front of an audience so that they can deter so I can crowdsource my music. That's not really what's going on here. I'm not trying to get the audience to write the song for me. What I'm trying to do is to find out like what thought processes are going on in my head that are shaping it. Um right. and how I can reapproach that when I'm sitting down to record it. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. I think, again, it comes to, um, like what I was saying about David Gilmore, he was talking about how, you know, you, you measure the crowd's response. And yeah, in, in the moment, you can change the way that you are viewing the song. And it might, it might be because you're playing to a crowd, you know, that for some time about Pink Floyd here, they're playing to a crowd in Italy tonight, Greece tomorrow, and, you know, and um, Israel the next day or whatever. Um, there's a there's a definite um, difference in the way they would do it than the way we would do it. But still, let's face it. I mean, the, those bands that we talked about earlier, those Aerosmiths and those um, those other Boston type bands, the New York bands that came out, the New York Dolls and the and the uh, oh come on, um, Blitzkrieg Bach and what the heck is the name of that band? <laughs> the Ramones. Um, you know it. Um, Kiss and so on and so forth. They were playing those songs for people like night after night after night. They got good at it. Mm -hmm. They could they could play them well. They could record them well. They would they they put life into them. Um, you didn't have to ask them to create life into a song. Right. Um, right. And uh, I'm not saying that's better or worse or anything like that. I'm just saying that that it definitely because it it grew in front of an audience. To play it in front of an audience, you've already got it down. You are you you are the master of that song. Your band knows it. Um, that's one thing that uh, what the heck's his name the the guy that that has the production YouTube video channel um, angry all the time. Glenn Fricker. Glenn Fricker. Thank you. <laughs> he's angry watching... all the time. I'm like, yeah, I know you're talking about that. Let's I was just watching a video of his where he was trying to talk about his 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 uh, favorite a recording um experiences and he he was talking about how like there were certain bands he recorded with that really knew the music they knew how to play it um and that i you know and each time he spoke spoke of that he spoke to the fact that these these guys knew um men and women by the way i'm to use guys in a in a generic sense not in a sexual sense or gen, um gender it's genderless guys um, since anyway, these folks knew the songs 
inside and out um, and could play them backwards and forwards. When you think about, uh, go back to Freebird, one of, one of the greatest jam songs, I think, of all time. Um, I know people would throw a bunch of, of uh, songs by the Grateful Dad or Fish or whatever, a bow at me. But for me, that outro solo is just incredible. Listen to those three guitars and what they're doing. You don't plan that. You don't write that down and go, okay, producer, go, okay, now what I'm going to have you do is you're going to play G, G major pentatonic in this position. I, while you're doing that, I want you to play this, this thing over this. And okay, now um, you are going to play the slide thing over here, but you're going to, then you're going to pull the slide off. You're just going to throw it on the floor and start. That's, <laughs> that's not what happened. These guys had played that song a bazillion times live. And then they, they pulled it off in the in the studio, and I'm I'm sure that guys like uh, you know that like Fish and Mo and and uh, the Grateful Dead and stuff did the same type of thing. I'm just using what one of my favorites is as an example that that it came about about in the studio, came about right there in the heat of the moment. I was just listening to it um, yesterday, uh, and my son, I said to my son who's 20, my son Kyle. I said, I said, sorry, buddy. I'm, you know, I saw the, I know this song is old and you probably don't like it. He goes, no, dad, I love this song. This is a good song. He said, this is really good. And so, and then I said to him, I said, listen to these parts. And I took the guitar down and I was playing different parts for him and showing him, this is what's going on here. And this was going on here. And this was going on here. And it gave him a new appreciation for it, for what the guys were doing. And suddenly the song went from here with him to like this, you know, because he knew the work that was involved, the 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 uh, effort that went into the tune. I don't know. I, Maybe I'm just. I think so. Yes, obviously the the outro to that is pretty chaotic, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and they're playing the chords and stuff. They're all good players. Um, I feel like there are definitely times where things that are spontaneous were cooked up though and not necessarily in that band but i mean like i there are guys out there that do that kind of stuff um frank zappa used to do that kind of stuff he would be scary good at saying you're gonna do this and you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that and then it comes out sounding like music and you're going how the hell did that happen um right but i'm sure that that those cooked up parts which i'm sure there are some of them um were because they had cooked it up after after king it oh, up yeah definitely okay a hundred times you know whatever number read of about times. the black page <laughs> before youtube was there for them to allow them to to get up you know and and to you know and it, yeah wow that's just the way i remember it. i can imagine somebody sitting at home you know the first time they they get the i, I think that was on street survivors album they pull it out put it on and they're like Oh yeah, that's just the way I remember seeing it live just a few months ago, and, you, and then no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't exactly that way, but it's okay because it had that feel, it had that punch, it had that movement. Talk about taking a slow, melodic, just almost boring song to me. That that beginning is so boring. I, I'm like, and then they, but it's the build, and that's why I listen to it. It's because it builds into what it does. You know, they 
just a run. It's like going for a walk to a jog to a sprint to you know to a run to a sprint. You know. Um. Wow, this is a long way away from Neil Schoen's rack rig. It is, but Neil Schoen, I don't think you know as much as I think that's why he he learned to hate Journey at a certain point was because he couldn't do that live when he was live, you know, when the lights go down in the city, you know, he had to play the, he had to play the solo the same way, you know, you know, um, don't stop believing. He had to play that. He had to play that every time. (laughs) That's the only time he had any fun. (laughs) Hey, look at this. I can do this. Um, I don't think Neil Schoen cared. I think Neil Schoen cared about money. Um, and I think that Some as soon as as soon as they started to make money in Journey, that's all that was that's all that really mattered there. And yeah. uh yeah, they wrote some good songs, but I mean obviously like they cashed in on some good songs too. Like they, they cashed in a lot. Um uh their greatest hits is still one of like the ten best selling records of all time, I think. Um but uh I just going back to the rack rig for a second like there's definitely ego there and there's definitely like oh excess rock and roll excess yeah i think is i think is the appropriate term um i don't know what uh how long we've been recording actually we we got time um so we got time i feel like um i feel like as far as the endorsement side of that thing is concerned like it's no big deal I think everybody at this point, if you think that the rig rundowns are totally legit all the time, you're crazy. Um, I can point you to a couple that are absolutely false, um, and and you'd be crazy to believe them. Um, two of them belong to Billy Gibbons, which we've talked about on the show before. You know that guy said he used like seven X Pandoras changed chained together for his drive sound at one point. Do you know what seven X Pandoras would sound like chained together? It would sound like like a wet fart. I mean, yeah. it would just be, it's just disgusting. Because um, it's you're talking about like so the X Pandora is basically a rat, and it's a rat that has a clipping mode that gets it into just to fuzz mode too. If you if you have that engaged, so just picture putting seven rats, <laughs> seven rat distortion pedals in a line, and then hitting an open chord. You know, that's basically what he's saying he did. I think that I think the reason that he was using seven X Pandoras together is maybe I'm saying maybe I'm just trying to give the benefit of the doubt. Here. I'm sure you have the Guitar One magazine laying around at your house somewhere where he actually I have said it. that. You should dig it out. I have it and read the article because I have a feeling if you read the article, if I recall, his tech actually says they're all on. Yeah, yeah. Seven or nine of them. I want to say it was nine, but it might have been seven. Yeah, it's um, it's an absurd. Either way, each number absurd is absurd. Number. <laughs> right. But the the thing that I that I would give the benefit of the doubt is is if he had them just a little bit, each one had a little bit. Of okay, game. so do you know you know what happens if you put a mid range boost into a mid range boost, Jim? It becomes a double mid range boost. You can't do what you're suggesting you're doing. <laughs> like that doesn't work because what's going to happen is you're going to be I, now in terms of distortion will work fine, but these pedals change the tonal character of the whole sound. So by the end of it, it's going to sound like a wah wah pedal. I mean, it's going to be like, 
Uh, same thing happened when they did that, when they did the, um, uh, the Sweetwater pedal demo where they put all of the pedals. Oh, the well, there was like 300 large, pedals. Yeah, the or largest pedal like board or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. and you could tell that like the guitar signal by the time they got through a couple of the boards was just like not even there Garbage. anymore. It was, you were just listening to like, like, so, it was like listening to a synth filter. <laughs> I don't <laughs> care how. basically what it is. Yeah, I don't care how clean the tone is going in. That many pedals is going to have noise in it somewhere in the chain. It, well, noise is part of it. So, like, that's what we saw with the world's greatest, biggest pedal board demo. Like, basically, it just became a freaking radio antenna um, and picked up all white noise in the tri-state area. Um, yeah. Well, it's... I mean, I don't even think you'd see static on your TV with that going. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but, but just think of it that, like, think of it as like stacking multiple filters on top of one another. If you stack a, a negative 12 dB bass cut on top of another negative 12 dB bass cut, you're going to have no bass. You're down negative 24 dB. And then you're going to stack right. another one. So now you're down negative 36. At this point, it's almost an audible. Did they have like what three hundred and eight pedals in that board? I don't I don't remember the number now. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like for some reason that number stuck something. in my head, but I could be. It, it was might even be more than that. I think it might have been every pedal that they had in inventory, which I think that was the case. They they used one of each. I mean, I can't imagine because any pedal is going to create a small amount of noise, even yeah. if it's microscopic. It's going to create a small amount of noise. And then it's going to amplify the small amount of noise it gets. And then that's going to amplify a small amount of noise it gets. Right. At some point, that becomes untamable. Did they? Yes. I, I don't honestly remember now. Did they Did they show it on and it was, it was like... It you know? sounded like the world's most ridiculous reverb because it was just reverbing white noise and delaying yeah. white noise because they put all the reverb and delay at the end. And I think they, and put, they they put some other stuff at the end too, but um, did they play a chord into it? Was it was it Rob Scallion? Rob, Sc Rob Scallion actually made a song out of it, debatably, um, which I think he actually had to go through and individually turn every pedal on. That was part of the world record thing. Um, yeah, and it was. I mean, you can go watch the video. It's. It, I don't think it's a usable idea, but what I'm saying is like the the combined effect of like taking the same pedal over and over it's yeah. almost like logarithmically doing what that pedal does it's it's like right. just escalating it and yes obviously there'd be a noise issue too but um i just don't see billy gibbons using seven mixonic expandoras or nine or ten. Oh, and to, yeah. and to a, I mean, and to, do you remember what the amp was because i remember what the amp was it was a Fender. No, it, it was, was a Fender Deluxe. A, one by a deluxe. twelve. A one yeah. by twelve Fender Deluxe. One by twelve Deluxe. Yeah, I will pull that out somewhere. There's like a drawing of. Yeah, it. that's a, it's and a it's Guitar like, Geek diagram. Yeah, and it, I was laughing. Yeah. I was laughing. Was either Guitar One or Guitar World. I want to say it was Guitar One. I was laughing because um, even at that time he had the endorsement with Crate, with with, and he was using the Crate Blue Voodoo's um, on stage. Obviously, he wasn't using those. Um, and then later on, he does a rig rundown on YouTube. Um, from Premier Guitar, and they go through his rig, and his tech shows this like uh, Marshall preamp, and he says that they're yep. running into a power amp. They run it direct to the PA with a with yep. a thirty one band EQ set to do a speaker model, and yep. I was just laughing because I'm like, "There's no way in hell they're doing that either." 
Like they yeah. they they, they, they may like a JMP one. Yeah, he may be using the JMP one, but there's there, somewhere there's a, a dummy cab in a yeah. you know in a in an enclosure that's mic'd up, and and his tech didn't want to show what the cabinet was because it was something. It was I haven't some seen them live, it, you know. Since, oh geez, I Eliminator. Some five six years ago. Um, Honestly, not a guitar amp on stage. Yep, I, I saw them live back in Eliminator slash Escalator or whatever the other album yeah. was. It was exactly the same album. Um, and it was, you know, it was a cool thing, but uh, Dusty was, first of all, Mike was in the midst of his big time in alcohol problems. And Dusty, the, the bass player, was trying to do keys as well. So a lot of times he wouldn't play bass. He was just playing keys. Uh, not that his bass parts are... I've, I've never played a, a difficult uh, bass line to um, ZZ Top. No, I, but they're always I, spot on, though. That's that's what's crazy. That, that is that that is exactly right. He is a he is a physical time piece. He's a he's a living, breathing metronome. So is Dusty, guy. and so is Dusty. Which is what neither of those that's guys really. They they you know, like they are respected in their in their uh, respected instruments. But it's like when you listen to their music, you're like, why? Um, and even yeah, even like Billy Gibbons, I think for the guitar community, we all realize like he's not like this super, um, super crazy guitar player. But we know that the parts he comes with, up with could be described as tasty, and they're perfect. And that's he plays. Yeah, he plays surprisingly stays away from A and E that most people play, and he plays a G and C a lot. Um, and he plays majors more than more than he likes uh, a lot most. of a lot of open G for slide. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like his I like his playing. Um, I always did. Uh, and the latest thing they did, I liked. They just haven't been able to tour it, so I haven't been able to go see them. I was really let down when they were opening for Kid Rock. I was like, really, you're opening for Kid Rock? That you've gone? Uh, that were co- I, I think they were actually co-headlining that tour. That yeah, they were opening for them, but some dates they went first, and some dates did rock yeah. first. So. Yeah, when they came to my area, they were the openers. I was like, oh, I'm not going to see. I'd I'd rather not see Kid Rock at all. I think I saw but, the year um, after they did that. I I think that's yeah. when I saw them. But. That makes sense. Um, so again, uh, I don't know. I I see a lot of these rig rundowns, but I remember that when I watch them, I remember that they get paid to say certain things. I mean, certain people get paid to say certain things. They, some of these musicians get paid to hold guitars in on magazine covers while they're playing a different guitar. You won't see Bill Keller of uh, Mastodon with his with his Line Six Helix in a rig rundown. Right, that's what's because hilarious. It's not cool enough. He's got he's got his Freedmans. He's got all yeah. the other stuff, but the last couple of times I've seen him out on on uh, various incarnations, he's got a helix on the floor. It's hilarious because he has yeah. no amps in the helix on the floor because they're yeah. doing fly dates now, so yeah. they can't. It's just take, realistic. They can't take a Friedman on the road like that. So yeah, we've talked about that before. Well, but the thing is, for him, he's got those deals, and now it's like I can't tell anybody what I'm using. So you see these pictures right. in the Helix group, and they're like unofficial pictures of like him playing guitar, and on the floor there's a Helix in front of him, you know, and you're like, is that Photoshop? No, that's the real deal. Um, 
Yeah. Is that a very axe in his hands? Um, there's, uh, there's so many, uh, so many questions. You know, the, the fact is that uh, there are so many gimmicks that musicians use. We've talked about this so many times. And it, you cannot sit down and say, oh, my, my favorite musician, with the exception of possibly Angus Young, uses X. Because you get a guy like Angus Young, he uses a certain guitar and a certain amp. Or Brian May, certain guitar, certain amp. Those guys were neither of those guys certainly would know if their tone would know offhand if their tone had unless somebody had done it. You know, it's like a mix engineer had taken their raw guitar right. and then put it through an axe effect. Um, right. But yeah, no, they're they, they're the kind of guys in the studio. They're like, no, no, we ain't doing it that way. Give me my amp. Um, Eric Johnson. Eric Johnson as well. Like, but other than that. Actually, I wouldn't even be shocked to find out Eric Johnson is using Axpex. And you know why? Because Eric Johnson has told people for years, you know, things like, oh, well, I use single coil pickups and whatever. And then he's using, you know, DiMarzio HS3 and his famous Strat, the one that he plays on the Virginia um, and stuff like that. And, oh, yeah, I use this, uh, these Marshall 100 lot super leads to record, you know, this song or whatever. And then it turns out it was like his Dumble Overdrive special and a 335. You know, like, I, I, I honestly think he just, it's it's what he can do in he's the moment. Trolling his it's what he can he's do. trolling people. It's what he can do in the moment. No, I I just don't think yeah. he remembers. Like, um, yeah, it's not all that important to him. He knows that they got the sound, and that's how it sounded, and that's what it was in his head, and then it didn't get committed to memory. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because I I had to find out from somebody else that that you know Cliffs of Dover was the three thirty five and the Overdrive special, but um, I don't think you were necessarily going to find that out from him. And I don't think I've ever heard him mention it, that like he's he's dumbbells. In fact, I found videos of him with his dumbbell, um, live videos <laughs> on YouTube, um, in the eighty like eighties before, right after Tones came out, but before the Cliffs of Dover record. And uh, there he was. Obvious music comments the Cliffs of Dover record, by the way. Um, and there he was, like playing with a dumbbell overdrive special in a live gig. Um, and yep. it's like, okay, that's how that happened, you know. Um, I remember yeah. seeing one of my favorite photos of him growing up was him playing an SG at the House of Blues somewhere. And I'm like, SG? Yeah, yeah. Huh? You know, you see Carlos Santana, right? And, and uh, of course, he's always, always, always with a yeah, PRS. Yeah, PRS now because he's an endorser. But, but guess what? All the albums I like that he recorded, because I... Other than I think what what was the one that he did that was collaborations um, that he did. Uh, He's done two of Supernatural, Supernatural one and yeah. two. Yeah. So it was it Supernatural one and Supernatural two? Which I I like both those albums. I'm just saying that all the ones I love from from back in the day, Abraxas and everything else, that was an SG. Um, it know, wasn't so, even an SG, uh, uh, Jim. It was an SG Junior. Junior. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna say. It was, an <laughs> it was the most basic. Bitch, yeah, I, yeah. It was the it was like the cheapo model, um, but man, he made it play and uh, used a lot of mescaline to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. incredible player. Yes, um, certainly. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, let's face it. You know, Angus Young might not have used a junior, but he only used one pickup. But. But I'm just saying, like, nothing is sacred anymore. 
especially no. when it comes to getting guitar tones. I don't know. I think we actually have this interpretation actually based on people's reputations and, and uh, how things have gone since we've grown up and stuff like that. That was the case at some point that people would not have manipulated their guitar five ways from Sunday to get it to do what they wanted to. And that's complete crap. Because I think, I, I mean, you listen to some of these guitar tones, um, reeling in the ears, like that song was direct to a board, you know, like, um, yeah, through an envelope filter. Yeah. Through an envelope filter. And then, uh, there was another song I was thinking of, um, where they were doing crazy stuff like that. And that's not all of the now Rogers stuff. The, uh, the now Rogers like direct. rhythm stuff is direct yep. to the board. Direct. Um, and nothing that's in between blasphemy. That's absolute yep. blasphemy. You know what I mean? Like, um, so just remember that just because well, you're what, guys got have to, that endorsement, have to that doesn't people. mean he was what he's using. That we have to remind people though. That was a sixty. What was that? A sixty-seven strat, sixty-eight strat. It was mid, uh, mid to late sixties, right? Yeah. So it was. A, it was a bastard child. So it had had the neck of one year and the body of another. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> it was a Stratocaster direct to the board. But we have to remind people that those records. Those boards had tube inputs. You had a tube pre. Yeah, but even then, I mean, they weren't designed to do I'm not, They're not designed with that level of harmonic distortion. Right. That the guitar amp would be designed with. Um, I've heard it said that boards... No, target, you didn't want that. Boards target a 0.01% amount of harmonic distortion, yeah. whereas guitar amps yeah. target around 10. Um, so... If you, if you listen to those early records, it's supposed to sound like that. I mean, you know, um, when you listen to to um, uh, the stuff that Sheik did, and that was that was hot, and he's playing two or three strings at a time, almost well, all well, the time. Mostly two, two, mostly most two. of the time. Because he gave uh, sometimes a third string. Who is he? Uh, he was on the uh, No Guitar Safe with Jude Gold, and he gave Jude yeah. Gold all kinds of crap. Because Jugo, with yeah. Jugo was like showing him this thing, and he's like, "I didn't do it that way." Like, yeah, two strings. Here's not how I three. Did it. <laughs> yeah, two <laughs> strings, not three. You're sloppy. <laughs> oh man, I've seen several interviews where he talks about, and he shows it. Yeah. He shows how he just did it with two strings. Yeah, he said, "I had a run. the rest of the band was the the ones picking up those harmonics. I'm not stepping on their toes. They're not stepping on mine." I mean, it's just funny, if, you know, to if, watch him play that. If stuff. you want to hear a guitar player who really knows how to fit into a band more so than anybody else, there's him and there's Carlos Alomar. And those two guys made a career out of being able to fit into a band um, and fit into the context of what's going on and not step out front. I don't think I can ever remember a time where, like, now Rogers was like, look at me, look at me, I'm going to be Eddie Van Halen for a second. And, but yep. but his style is like so respected because he yeah. knew how to fit what they were doing. He never had anything to prove. Right. I think that's the big part. There was never about his ego. It was always about what fits the song. You hear so many musicians talk about that. I played what fit the song. I played what fit the song. Um, and to be honest, a guy like, like, um, uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, that's what he was doing. He was playing to fit the song. But the song was the boisterous guitar that he was doing. Jimi Hendrix is the same way. I mean, when you've only got three things, and 
whether we think they're good singers or not, they did not think they were great singers. Ergo, they compensated in their own minds. Say, okay, my guitar playing is going to be the better part of the singing. I think it was Eric Clapton who said he didn't even like to hear the sound of his own voice as well. Yeah, Jimmy, and he would, um, yeah, Jimmy said that. Yeah. And so he, he would play to, you know, he's like, all right, bring the voice down, <laughs> down, down, down in the mix. I want to hear my, want to hear my guitar. That might be Eric on that one. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. Well, we've been. Uh, What's your favorite? Let me yeah. ask you something. Yeah. What's your very favorite? If you had to pick one Jimi Hendrix song, what's your very favorite? Which one would it be? If six was nine. Six was nine. Yeah, because for me, it's, it's like Dolly. Oh, Dolly Dagger, right? Yeah. Dolly so Dagger. The reason why I say if six was nine is because for yep. me, it's completely re- representative of his entire catalog. Um, and it is the most psychedelic piece of music I've ever heard. I mean, he's freaking just going on a recorder. And yeah. and for like the longest time, I thought it was backwards guitar sped up. And it's, yeah, yeah I mean, he's literally on the recorder. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. When I found that out, I was like, no, really? Is that how he did that? I found this out like recently, like in the last week or two. And I just had a moment and I was like, really? I didn't know that. Like I just have a, I had no inclination. Um, but I feel like that's also Jimmy's words to everybody about how he lived his life and also about how he was going to die because he actually yeah. talks about his own death in that song. Um, you know, yeah, it's kind of spooky, really kind of messed up. And there are a few, so like Freddie Mercury in one of his songs also spoke about his own death. And I, there, there are a very few people that have done that. But I think the interesting yep. thing is like Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix and Freddie Mercury. Yep. But if, when Freddie Mercury did, it, it was thinly veiled. When Jim right. Morrison did it, it was done poetically. When Jimi Hendrix did it, it was like, I'm the one that's going to die when it's time for, <clears throat> has to die when it's time for me to die. Like, when you think about that for a minute, like he's not he, he's di- addressing you directly and talking about his death, and they do it indirectly, right? So that's that's always been a personal thing. That's why I love Six Was Nine so much. There's there's a lot going on there. <coughs> Sorry, but, folks, I had a I had a gnat fly into my throat. That's better than COVID nineteen. <laughs> What's that? That's no. better than COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah, much better. It just blew right in there. It was like. I'm sitting there saying, yeah, and it went, <laughs> and I heard right. it. I, I felt it hit them. We'll, we'll slow it down, and we'll replay that a couple times when we, <laughs> we've been yeah, on me, here. Dolly Dagger. Is, oh, yeah, go ahead. You tell me about, about because, Dolly Dagger. <clears throat> the reason I, I love Dolly Dagger so much is the way that the the guitar, for me, in that song, and he, and he does it in a few songs, but for me, the it was the most effective. The guitar becomes a voice in that song. He so layered the guitar <clears throat> with his voice during the during the vocals when he's singing. Usually his guitar almost like yeah, I don't want to say take a back seat. He's doing a Nile Rogers thing in that song. Like it it's very <clears throat> yeah. much like, hey, let's see what we can get my own guitar to fit with itself. And the right. the parts are very much in the vein of like that funky stuff, you know? Yep. Yep. 
I'm yeah. very familiar with all of Hendrix's catalog. So I, you got some other ones you want to talk about? Like, I, I, no, I'm I just, listening to the song in my head as we're talking about this. Oh yeah, me too. I'm listening to that that chorus yeah. <laughs> and the way he's playing the guitar. Like, listen to my guitar sing the words. You know where you hear it's that? It's incredible. Do you know where you hear that again though? That like that the funky rhythm playing and stuff in that song. What's that? Bridge of Size, the, that record, uh, Day of the Eagle. Yeah. Day yep. of the Eagle specifically. Day of the Eagle. That song. Yeah. But that Trower. Yeah, yeah I know, but another, he, he, he another incredible player. I saw this stuff happen, so I'm going to do it too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, when you think back to the time frame, uh, when did Bridge of Size come out? 70? Uh, 73, I think. Series, right? Yeah, yeah. 73, 73. 73, so. <clears throat> he was probably writing that 72, you know, pretty much right after we lost uh, uh, yeah, Hendrix, Hendrix right? 70. We lost him in 70 and, <clears throat> and I'm oh, sure it was kind of a, we got, I'm, I got, I got to switch. We had, yeah. we had somebody in our group. Um, So I posted the thing about Brian May uh, from guitar world magazine readers poll, which is actually not even oh, a guitar yeah. world. Ma- it was a British magazine post. Uh, right. <clears throat> and uh, total guitar. Right. And so that's fine. You know, no big deal. Uh, Brian may won a reader's choice poll. So he's allegedly now the best guitar player ever um, in a reader's choice poll, which means that literally nothing to me. Um, And the fact is I love Brian may Brian may is one of my favorite guitar players of all time. He's in my top 10 list. And I know people like you never talk about him on the show. It's because like, I don't talk about everybody on the show. Um, right, right. but, but realistically, like I've even looked at getting like red special style guitars and stuff before, because I really like his playing. I, you know, uh, anyway, long story short, um, he wins. Right. And if you know anything about Brian May, Brian May's like biggest hero was Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles. That's right. Cause that was like a big part <clears throat> yep. of their, their idea of like how they approach things. Like what would Jimmy do? What would the Beatles do? Um, right. And a lot of the queen material you can see is like referencing a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, um, he wins. Great job, right? And then I said, mm-hmm. I said in the group, like, basically post this. And I said, well, how much <clears> would that <throat> suck to be in that position where, like, you've replaced your hero? You know what I mean? Like, how much would you have, like, well, how would you handle it? Now, of course, Brian May, classiest guy on earth. So he, he handles it with, you know, wonderful, wonderful, like, applause, basically. Um, and yep. says, you know, essentially that, yeah, I'm just glad people really like it. And, you know, it's like, I, it's amazing to me that you would put me in front of him, but you know, um, whatever. So I said that. And then somebody in our group, I don't even remember who, and I'm not calling people out, but somebody in the group came in and they said like, <clears throat> Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix is not a good guitar player. Or like they were, they yeah. were weighing towards, sloppy. weighing towards that. Or yeah. It's like, honestly, like, I didn't say it because I'm not a jerk and I'm not like this kind of a person, but I was thinking like, get the hell out of here. Like, we didn't want you here. Like, what are you doing here? Um, and, 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 and I saw a similar post earlier last week and I actually posted and replied. And I said, I said, false. <laughs> so he said, yeah. Jimmy guitar player, uh, <clears throat> Jimmy Hendrix is an overrated sloppy player. And I said, false. <laughs> didn't yeah, provide any I... information. Didn't provide anything. Cause there's no information needed. If you think he's if right. you think he's sloppy, it's because you got problems. Like something in your head doesn't allow you to understand the historical context in which Jimi Hendrix lived. All right. So, I don't think it's 
I don't think it's the problem of that. I think we go back to what we talked about with Billy Eilish's record. It's that there is this, there is this. I, I, I okay. So I'll, I'll give, I'll, I'll take us way back, 1986 or so. I'm having a discussion with a friend of mine about guitar, mu- about music and records. And he was a Bad Company fan, and he was a Boston fan, blah blah blah. And I said, "You know, have you ever sat down and listened to Zeppelin, or have you sat and listened to Hendrix?" So, oh no, I can't listen to that. I go, why? He goes, all oh, that stuff's just too sloppy. It's just, it's garbage. I mean, we're talking about the 80s. <clears throat> and so I asked him, I said, what? what is he goes, yeah, I don't even like live music. It's just, I can't stand music that's not perfect and dead on and, and precise all the way through. He goes, I can't, can't listen to live music either because it sounds too sloppy. So <clears throat> there are people who, um, once they've heard quote unquote perfection in music, they can't listen to something that's imperfect. Even the bands he liked, he wouldn't go see live because of the that very reason. This, person, was, this he, person was a musician. No, 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 he was just a that's a gag. That's what then there you go. That's it. So that's the, the and and I know people like that even now. They're like, I don't want to watch a live concert. Well right. I have my wife actually had told me that at one point like I'm not really all that into live music. And I said, that's because you don't know how to experience it. Now she'll watch live music with me all the time. Um, right. Because she realized, like, that's the true measure of a band. If the band comes in, comes out and does a completely rehearsed show every single night with the same banter, it's embarrassing. Yep. And I see it all the time. <laughs> it's like, hello, Chicago. And then tomorrow it's, hello, Virginia Beach. And then tomorrow it's, hello, right. LA. And it's like, who cares? We all know it's rehearsed. Stop it. We don't want to see that. Just play Which the is why they songs. get the city wrong half the time. <laughs> yeah, they do. I actually have heard that in person before. Um, so I, this is the other thread that I saw that I thought was a little bit more interesting. And it was still a troll thread, but it was like it was more well thought out because they they were like Jimi Hendrix or, or Tosin Abasi is a better guitar player than Jimi Hendrix. And I responded, and, it, and this is what I said, and this is going to be my final thought for the episode. I think we should just leave on this. But my yep. response was this. Tosin Abasi has great shoulders to stand on, which include Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix's shoulders, the shoulders he stood on, were much smaller. Yeah. I have been David. I'm a Jim. And tonight, we've been the Practical Guitarists. <laughs>